I like to think about the hard stuff in life as kind of like an onion and there's layers to the onion, right? And onions make you cry and they can be very painful to work with. But onions also make dishes better. They like add flavor, they add spice, they add all these different components to a meal that if we didn't go through that pain or we didn't like peel back those layers, we wouldn't get that stuff, that, that benefit um, that the onion has to give us. And I really think that that's true for the hard stuff of life, that it is really painful and it is really hard, but it also comes with a lot of beauty and a lot of potential and a lot of flavor. Like it adds to our lives. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Resilient People. I'm your host, Janet Fanaki. Resilient People features my conversations with regular, but what I like to call extraordinary people from around the world who are admired for their resilience. They've overcome a major challenge, found a purpose from it, and now help others be resilient too. Resilient People started when I was spending a lot of time in a cancer center with my husband, who was living with terminal brain cancer. I wondered about the big and challenging life events that people deal with and how they manage them, and even if they use those experiences as a purpose to help others. If you're like me and get inspired by the average people who have overcome challenges and done something positive to impact others, then this is the show for you. I call myself a resilience explorer. I'm not a psychologist or a coach but someone who's been through a really hard experience in losing my husband when he was only 51 years old. The tools that I had in place to keep a positive mindset are similar to how many of my guests got through their challenges. I'm particularly interested in what makes people resilient, what they do differently to be that way, learn about their purpose, and some tips and takeaways to maintain a positive mindset. August 1st, 2007 seemed like any other day for the 140,000 drivers that regularly crossed the I-35 West Bridge in Minneapolis. At 6 p.m. when many of them were on their way home, this steel bridge suddenly collapsed, sending the cars and people on it plunging into the Mississippi River. Thirteen people died that day. My guest on this episode of Resilient People... Lindsay Walls, was one of 145 survivors. Lindsay lives in Minneapolis, is a youth worker, artist, and trauma survivor. The youth that she worked with were living with post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma. Before the bridge collapse, Lindsay didn't have much personal experience with trauma or PTSD, but ironically, it became something that she would have to learn to live with as well. Lindsay and I spoke about her memories from that day, the lifelong process of healing from that devastating experience, the tools that she's used to deal with PTSD, and learning to cross bridges again. We spoke over Zoom from Toronto and Minneapolis. 2007, you survived a pretty traumatic experience. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um... I I'm I'm a really small town girl. I grew up in a really small town and I never in my wildest dreams would have thought that um, I would be involved in something that would make like worldwide headlines. But in 2007, 
the bridge here in Minneapolis collapsed. And so some people may remember hearing about that. There were over 150 people who were on the bridge, including myself, and 13 people died that day. My story is that I was in the middle of the bridge heading southbound, heading home for my day, working with young people who all had some version of PTSD and trauma that I didn't really understand yet. And I got to the middle of the bridge. It was very slow traffic, a slow moving um, trip home and something broke and my car ended up falling 120 feet into the Mississippi River and it kind of nosedived into the river. So I would say I kind of have two traumas. I have the falling and thinking you're gonna die when you hit the ground, whatever. You know, I, I kind of knew that the river was there, but still knew I was on concrete. So I assumed that I would hit concrete and that would be it. And then I have a drowning trauma where I landed at the bottom of the river. That's when my car finally stopped moving. And by the time my car stopped moving, my cabin of my car was full of water because it just came right up through the engine and the ventilation system right up into my car. So I didn't really have that last gasp of air or those different things that they show in movies sometimes. I'm always struck these days by how often there are bridges falling and cars falling into water. It's, and it's an obsession. Um, so I get to see that on a regular basis. But my survival aspect of my story is still one that has a lot of mystery to it. It's something that I don't know all the answers to it. I remember unbuckling my seatbelt. That's kind of the last thing that felt really like a clear decision point, unbuckle your seatbelt, get out of the seat. And then I just started to push on the surfaces inside my car, hoping that some glass had broken, something would give way. And I knew the terrain of that area. I, there's not like a river walk or something where people would be really close by and able to access folks quickly. So I really knew that it was my own problem to get out of, like nobody was going to come and get. And I can even feel myself breathing differently as I tell the story. It always happens. But as I pushed, I was really clear that I was running out of air. I was not going to be able to do that forever. And there was a point where I started to gulp in water. And as each of those gulps happened, I really had to shift my thinking from getting out to saying goodbye and to like processing the leaving this earth process. And so, you know, the, the typical things like, you know, life flashing before your eyes, thinking about the things that I wouldn't get to do. I was only 24 at the time and really just starting my life. And I came to a place of peace and acceptance that that was where my life would end. And then I kind of had this flash of light kind of experience and felt like I was floating beyond the confines of my car Been kind of in this little bubble. And all of a sudden it seemed more open. And so I kicked and kept going and kicked to the surface and wasn't so sure if I was alive or dead. And eventually someone saw me flailing about in the river and called me over to the island of bridge and hauled me out of the river. And I waited and um, waited. <laughs> 
it took a long time for help to arrive. Physically, I ended up with a broken um, vertebrae, which I, I hear about the people who break their backs and don't end up paralyzed. So that was a, a fear that I had. I knew something was wrong with my back. And so I had to wiggling my toes as I waited for help to arrive. Eventually got to the hospital and had five days of recovery in the hospital, spent five months in a back brace. And then I always say that I had five years of serious post-traumatic stress um, to go along with all of that. You know, my back injury was significant, but and often tends to be the thing people focus on. But for me, the PTSD was really what the focus of my healing has been. Does it feel like as if this experience just happened every time you talk about it? Say for the first four, four to five years, I talked, I thought about it every single day. I talked about it most days in some way, shape or form in connection to my healing and new awareness that I was having about my behaviors post trauma. It's now something that is very much a part of me and informs everything that I do, but I have a lot more to me, you know, like that it's not central anymore the way that it had been. I just want to go back to when you mentioned, you know, that you were on the bridge and when it collapsed Mm -hmm. And just to give people an appreciation, when I looked at a a photo of the bridge, it's Mm -hmm. pretty high up from the river. It's not like this is a bridge that is, you know, only maybe 10 feet above the water level. Yeah. So that drop would have been Mm -hmm. quite traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. That part felt, you know, sometimes they say this idea of time standing still, that part very much had that vibe to it. You know, there's a security tape that has made its rounds or did make its rounds back then that shows it falling and it's probably five, 10 seconds at most that it's, you know, actually falling. But yeah, it felt like an eternity because I'm sure what would happen at the bottom. When you look at that bridge or what used to be the bridge, because I think it's -hmm. it's no longer there, right? Am I... There's a new, it's still, it's it's, it's like an interstate. So it had to get rebuilt and it got rebuilt. Yeah. Really but it was constructed out of steel. People might be hearing this and thinking, oh, is this just some wooden bridge? It's not. It's something mm-hmm. that when you looked at it, you would think there's no way that anything could happen to this. Like it would be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that yeah. was another part of the story when it made the news that I was like, yeah. how can this happen? Yep. Yeah, it was, um, there was a famous quote from one of our senators that a bridge in America should not fall down, right? Like, it's just like, that just should not be a thing that we are dealing with. So how did you heal from that experience? Ooh, big question. <laughs> Gosh, the initial healing process was very much my physical body. Five days that I was in the hospital, I had to learn how to walk again like my body was so traumatized and so like shell-shocked that's the way I I think about that terminology of shell-shocked it's like a very physical sensation to me and so I had to learn everything over again and there's a lot of pain and and there was a lot of emotion attached to the pain and to the like the limitations that 
I now had, like I couldn't be the independent person that I had been and could just, I was so, I didn't rely on anybody for anything. And that that changed a lot. And so there was an emotional process just dealing with the physical injuries. Once that stabilized a little bit more and I was able to start to work on the emotional stuff, I did right away. One of the things that I was really aware of even sitting on the bridge that day waiting for help was like I'd mentioned before, I came from work working with young people who all to some degree or another had PTSD stuff going on. And I knew what that could look like when it's not attended to, right? It's when it's not cared for. And so I wanted to attend to it as quickly as I could in my own life. Attending to that part was a very long process, a very long journey of understanding myself, of learning. So there's some things that I started to do, different behaviors that were the survivor, survival oriented behaviors. Like when I started to drive again, I would put my finger on the, the window of the car. So in the event that something happened, I would just be ready and I'd be able to survive it. Right. Like I could conceptualize, like I can do this better now. <laughs> like If it happens again, I, I know what to do now. So there were different aspects of my behavior that changed to try to like control for that possibility. There was a lot of just having to work through the reality that this was like a once in a million trillion, I don't know what the odds are that that would happen and that it would happen to me. Um, but of course it became a thread around every corner, right? So I suddenly was really aware of elevators, right? I, I stood in elevators differently. I held on to the bottom of the rail so that like, if it, if the cord broke, I would have, I wouldn't hit my head on the top, right? Like all of these different things became threats because they were in some way, usually for me, it was around the man-made or inspected nature of things that like humans had their hands on it and that could be flawed because of it, right? I'm really fortunate that like people weren't part of the problem for me. <laughs> A lot of people I think really struggle with traumas associated with their people and that creates so much more complication. For me, I could just ignore the bridge or ignore the elevator or do things that I would feel safer with. I have have a few moments. One was, I think it was like 2014, maybe 2015, where I was at a, a camp situation and they had one of those like swinging rope bridge type apparatuses and yeah (laughs) normally (laughs) not something I would do okay but it wasn't it wasn't in the rainforest and really old and rickety and all that it was like looked new um but I I decided because I was there kind of in this self-care mode I decided I need to walk up that okay and I, I did it for this class that I was going to I wanted to go to the class so that's kind of my parameter of like when to challenge myself through these fears is like, I don't want it to stop my life. So like, if I want to do something and it will require me to go walk across this rope bridge, then I'll do it. I'll, I'll find my way through it. And of course, as I'm like on the rope bridge, waiting to get into this little hut, 
somebody comes like walking really like strongly across it and like the whole you know my whole body just like completely freaked out yeah and I spent that entire class crying but at the end of the class I was a different person I processed something that was really important to process and I happened to be in the right situation and instead of circumstances to do that and I'm really grateful for that what kind of uh, support did you have after the event a lot of different kinds of support. So I was living with my boyfriend then, husband now. So he was able to do a lot of the like kind of basic caretaking for me. My mom initially, she was a teacher. So it happened in August. She could come and just be with me for a period of time and not worry about her job and things like that. And so some of that early caretaking stuff, I really had a lot of family support for longer term emotionally as I think a lot of people experience the once the initial event wears off it's kind of it becomes more isolating I surrounded myself with lots of different kinds of professionals and different folks I had a support group made up of survivors which was a really critical piece of healing for me I might say some way that I had adapted my thinking to a nor- quote unquote normal person and they might look at me like well that's a little something but I could go to that group and say yeah when I'm driving under that tunnel I'm thinking about whether or not I can get behind the semi so that in the event that the tunnel collapses the semi can hold open and hold up the cement and create a little air pocket so that I can survive you can say that <laughs> to folks who've been through what I've been through and they all just nod their heads and go yep I'm, I think just like you do now. And so that was a really critical part. And I think it's something that lots of people could benefit from in their own ways. So um, being a like-minded community, people, yeah, who, people like who, get it, who get it, who get it, who you don't have to explain yourself to, cause they just, they have those same kinds of thoughts and feelings and it normalizes, you know, not that we want to normalize Sometimes those thoughts and feelings can become abnormal, right? And harmful to us. But I think that that version often happens because we don't give time to normalizing it in the moment. I also picked up art. So it really came into my life after the collapse. And it was a really important part of my healing journey because it helped me process things differently. You don't need words, it's colors. It tapped into different pieces. One, I was just thinking about one of the paintings that I did actually in relation to the pandemic. Noticing, how, I was having some of these same feelings as people are like, aren't you excited to go back to things? And I was noticing, you know, like I'm not 100% excited. And what's that about for me? And I was re- remembering the point where I was starting to have my doctor say, you can go back to work soon. And some people might be like, oh, good, that's exciting. That's normal, right? I'm going back to something normal. And I was like, I don't want to go back. Like, I'm not, I'm not ready. I have not done the work that I need to do to be normal, quote unquote, normal again. And one of my paintings I called Time for Tears, because like the first thing I painted was this big teardrop. And it just became super clear to me that like, I feel rushed. I feel like I have to be better because I have to go back to work or I have to be the old version of myself. And I'm not <laughs> the old version of myself. And I don't, and I don't even know what I am yet, right? Like I'm so in the thick of it. And so painting really just 
helped give words to some of those feelings that I couldn't really conceptualize and really became a beneficial part of my process. I also, just in terms of different kinds of therapies, I did exposure therapy. So my version of exposure therapy with a therapist turned into that rope bridge experience, right? So I was able to eventually do that for myself where this is ahead of me. What do I need to do to get there, right? And so I did a lot of exposure around water because I was holding my breath in the shower. Like I <laughs> realized one day I was like, out of breath as I get out of the shower, like, what's that about? Oh, because I'm not breathing. And so I had to reorient to water and decide what my relationship with water was going to be. So that's one of those where I wasn't a big swimmer before. So I haven't put my head under water for how many years now? 14 years. So is exposure um, therapy where your therapist would physically take you to places and mm -hmm. you... Can you describe that a bit? Yeah, yeah. So oftentimes exposure therapy starts by doing things like looking at pictures of water or listening to sounds of water, um, depending you know, on obviously what you're dealing with. But eventually we actually got to use a pool and had access to a pool. We went to the river right where the bridge collapse had happened and spend some time just right by the river and getting the whole sensory experience of that area. So it's really about baby stepping your way toward the thing that's kind of an obstacle, I guess is what, how I would call it, this triggering experience. So it's, that's been a really powerful way for me to think about any of my things moving into life now, right? Is how do I expose myself to this in baby steps and how do I work? It's, it's, to me, it's about building that resilience muscle, right? It's, a little bit and then a little bit more and then eventually it's easy to do and sometimes it's not and sometimes it's okay for it not to be easy water is not a thing for me it, it wasn't a thing before so it's not necessary for me to like push myself to like overcome this thing when I don't need it in my life it doesn't fulfill me in a certain kind of way Whereas with that rope bridge, I had to, that thing at the other end was going to fulfill me in a different kind of way. And I needed it in my life. So I chose to take that step to go there. Sounds like you did a lot of really amazing things, both through a professional medium, like therapists mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. your art mm -hmm. to get yourself to, I would say a good place. What mm -hmm. would you say? Yeah, yeah. To me, that's one of the things that I think healing requires so many ways to come at the wounds we carry. And so I feel like I've got tons of different tools in my toolbox now. One of the things that I'm really clear about as, and I don't know if it's true for all trauma survivors or if mine's particularly like intense, so it lingers, but every once in a while, like once a year these days, I'll, I'll have this moment where I go, you know, I, maybe I don't have PTSD anymore. Like maybe I'm okay. Maybe things are back to quote unquote normal. And then within 24 hours, I get something <laughs> handed to me that uh, triggers all of the stuff again. And so for me, being better and being okay is living with PTSD and knowing how my body will react in different situations and then having the tools 
to calm my body down. So it's not that I won't react ever again. It's knowing that that probably just will be a part of my life moving forward and that I have to have those tools to um, take care of myself. Yeah, I think that's a big part of resilience too, right? You know, mm-hmm. being aware that these yeah. things are out there and how to deal with them, having that yeah. self-awareness of what are the ways that you're going to do, that you're going to help yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I, one of them that was probably the most recent one that I had was a very recent anniversary of the collapse. I usually try to do something really kind for myself that day take the day off of work. Nobody gets to have my time that day (laughs) unless I want them to. But I I decided to go and do a spa day. I'd never had a facial before, never done any of that. Getting the facial was totally in the Zen mode. And then all of a sudden my body felt a like wall of water. It was the steam wand. But in my body, like that, those tiny little particles of water felt like like wave crashing against my my face Mm -hmm. and I like instinctually stopped breathing and like completely started to panic because I was really aware that that's what happens you know I've learned so much about how trauma works because of my work and because of experiencing it that okay that's what my body thinks is happening and I have to convince my body that I'm okay right and so I had to like literally in my head so and all of this is happening while the esthetician or whatever is completely unaware (laughs) but I'm like in my head saying I'm okay I am safe I am safe I am safe and actively breathing through the steam and like forcing myself to breathe the entire time and keep an even pace and like reminding myself where I am I am in the present moment moving through that process I was able to get back into relaxation mode and but like my initial instinct was to literally leap up off the table, like leave the room naked. <laughs> like, been something. Oh, like, you know, like get away from that. Right. And so to me, that's the work moving forward is just maintain that where I'm feeling triggered, if I'm feeling triggered, what to do about it, all that stuff. Wow. You know, just even something as, you know, as steaming yeah, wand, right? Exactly. That this can even be a trigger. That's amazing. But, you know, good for you for being able to ride it out. And I hope you got to enjoy the rest of your facial. I did. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Once I got through, once I got through that step, I was in, I was back in relaxation. Okay, good. So what are some other things that you do on a daily basis to build your resilience? I feel really fortunate to have a husband that I can process with emotionally on a regular basis. I don't think that that's everyone's experience, but whether it's my trauma specific stuff or it's just day-to-day like anxieties or things that show up in interpersonal relationships, I can just process those things. I think a big part of my resilience journey has been learning how to process emotions. I tended to, before the bridge collapse, I tended to be a, I just kind of was a stuffer, I guess, you know, stuff those emotions, not really feel them. And so I'm, I've really opened up to feeling the whole breadth of my emotional experience. And, um, and sometimes that means having to Cause I still have these tendencies to like not cry or not whatever. And so sometimes I like actively seek out things that will make me cry so that I can process and get it out of my system. Cause I can feel it 
in there. And so I just need to give myself some catalyst for moving it through my body. To really lean um, into whatever you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think, um, one of the most important things that I've learned on this journey is that you feel it one way or the other. And the, the more, um, resolving way to feel it is in the moment and to pro and to go through it. You know, there's that idea of going through it rather than around it. And I think I spent the first part of my healing journey, some ways trying to go through it, but I think ultimately was spending a lot more time going around it and that backfired on me in different ways and, and caused more problems in mm -hmm. my life for a bit. And so, yeah, so really just trying to move through whatever it is I'm feeling each day. And that requires that self-awareness, that presence of being, all that stuff. So I do a lot of contemplative stuff like journaling and making sure I drink enough water every day. And, you know, those are not they're basics, but it's so easy to forget to take care of yourself in that way. And so, yeah, a lot of that. And then I just have to like, con like, I think about resilience as a practice. There was a moment in my healing journey where I was like, okay, I'm good. I checked that box. Right. And, and then life handed me some crap to deal with. And so it's just really clear to me that, you know, even if I get a handle on one thing, like I have to almost relearn some of the skills that I learned for that within a different context, like, oh yeah, I have all those tools. Oh yeah, I have these ways to get back to my best self. And I have to practice that, practice finding those tools, practice using those tools. Do you have any parting advice to share with anyone? I will, I'll, I'll say the thing that I said to someone the other day, and I like to use, I love metaphors because I think they speak to something we can't always put words to, but I like to think about the hard stuff in life as kind of like an onion and there's layers to the onion, right? And onions make you cry and they can be very painful to work with, but onions also make dishes better. They like add flavor, they add spice, they add all of these different components to a meal that if we didn't go through that pain or we didn't like peel back those layers, we wouldn't get that stuff, that, that benefit um, that the onion has to give us. And I really think that that's true for the hard stuff of life, that it is really painful and it is really hard, but it also comes with a lot of beauty and a lot of potential and a lot of flavor. Like it adds to our lives. I couldn't predict the ways that my life has changed from the bridge collapse, but it's one of those things that I, given the option, if I knew what my life was today and I could go back in a time machine and not have the bridge collapse on me, I wouldn't do it differently regardless of the pain, regardless of the, the hard stuff that I had to deal with, I am who I am today because that happened. When I record these conversations, I'm constantly reminded of the power that each of us has to move beyond our setbacks. It's like the old saying goes, when there's a will, there's a way. You didn't need to be on that bridge that day to be shaken by it. Maybe you felt the same way as I did after hearing Lindsay's story, thinking about the number of times that you've driven across a bridge, and then imagining it happening to you and how you deal with the consequences. Lindsay knew that through her work with youth living with PTSD, particularly the kind that had gone untreated and unattended to, 
that she needed to learn ways to cope early on in order to eventually live a normal life. It's that self-awareness and using professional resources that empowered her, going through issues rather than around them. And how about when she said that we should look to the simple onion as an analogy for life's challenges? She's right. To learn more about Lindsay Walls, go to lindsaywalls.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resilient People. Please subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review. And I'd love it if you'd share Resilient People with your friends and family. It would mean a lot. If you've got a way that helps you be resilient, have a story of resilience to share, or know someone who does, drop me a line. Info at resilientpeople.ca. You may just hear about it on an upcoming episode. This show is created by me, Janet Fanaki, with thanks to my team at Edit Audio, editor Kanika Codrington, and producers Sophie Shin and Steph Coburn. On the next episode of Resilient People, I'll have The Tempest 2. They are Tommy Cofield and James Whittle, two friends from the UK who rode across the Atlantic in a rowboat with no prior experience. It's a great conversation and I hope you'll listen. Go to resilientpeople.ca to access more about the show, past episodes of the podcast, me, articles written by experts on building resilience, my passion project, the Adam Fanaki Brain Fund, and to purchase a resilient t-shirt. Thanks for listening. I'm Janet Fanaki. See you next time on Resilient People. Bye for now. If you like beautifully crafted jewelry like I do and supporting small business, then you need to know about Biko. Biko is a Canadian brand with pieces inspired by nature, contemporary art, and architecture. Every design is beautifully made with luxe materials but won't break the bank. I want you to get to know this brand that I love so much. Go to ilovebiko, that's B-I-K-O dot com. And use the promo code RESILIENT to get 10% off your order. When I put on one of my Biko pieces, I instantly feel polished and ready to go. No matter if I've got on my cozies or an outfit for dinner with friends. Oh, and get ready for lots of compliments when you wear your Biko pieces because they are all fabulous. Remember, go to ilovebiko.com and get 10% off when you use your promo code RESILIENT. Divorce sucks, but it doesn't have to be all bad. Hi, I'm Leanne Townsend, a family law lawyer and chair of the family law group at Mills & Mills LLP, and I want to help you divorce well. My Divorcing Well podcast aims to help provide listeners with the tools and knowledge they need to support themselves legally, financially, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually while they're going through divorce. It's a holistic approach because you need a holistic approach when you're going through this challenging time. I want listeners to tune in to the Divorcing Well podcast because they're looking for the knowledge and inspiration to get them through the rough days. And on the positive days, they will gain the tools that they need 
to heal and move through the various stages of grief that divorce can bring. Please tune in to Divorcing Well. You can find it on all platforms where podcasts are played, including Spotify, Apple, Google Play, and Anchor.